Well, hey guys, good morning. Welcome to Grace Church. Like, wow, nice warm welcome. Um, I'm Josiah, like Jeff said, and I have had several life updates since I've been up here last. Like he said, one of them was I'm a resident now, so I get to work here a little bit more. I'm working with some Grace Group stuff, picking up some more responsibilities, um, but that's great. And also, as of exact three weeks as of yesterday, I am been married. So that's exciting. That's another life update. And, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know if you noticed, but the other singer up here was my wife, Grace. So we'd love to get to know both of anyone else here. So introducing her afterwards for sure. But, um, but yeah, so I'm excited to be up here, excited to talk to you guys again and continue our Life of Jesus series that we've been going through this summer. We've been talking about this whole Life of Jesus and breaking it down into several different uh, groups and categories, right? So we started with the prophecies of Jesus, looked at the life uh, the birth and the death of Jesus and what all that looked like, what the prophecies were about and how they mean, what they mean for us today. And then we also looked at the miracles. Joel finished that up last week. Like Jess said, he did a great job. Uh, and we talked about several different miracles that Jesus did, what they meant, why he did them, and what they mean for us today. So today we're starting another section on the parables of Jesus. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word parable? It's not really something that we use today. It's not something we use to teach something, right? The basic concept of a parable is it's a story that teaches a lesson or lessons, right? And we have several ways to teach lessons today, so we don't always use like a parable because it doesn't uh, just, we don't use it a lot. My high school teachers had very various ways to uh, teach us some interesting concepts or some things we needed to learn for life. For example, if we were late to class, we would have to roll a die. One of our teachers called it the dice of discipline. So if you were late to class, it was like, you get to roll the dice of discipline. Everyone else was excited to see you roll the die because that means they didn't have to and it was kind of fun to find out what happened. So you would roll the die, depending on the number, you'd have to do a certain thing that would be your punishment. One of them was like writing an essay. No one wanted to write an essay, so one of them was writing an essay. The other one was like feats of strength. So he would, one of the feats of strength you'd have one of the guys do was you had to hold your hands out and you'd put a piece of paper on each of your palms. And if you'd have to sit like that for 15, 20 minutes. And if you dropped either of the pieces of paper, it'd have to start over. So you might not think that's that hard, but try doing that for like a minute or two. It gets challenging pretty quickly. And then to not let that drop, it's kind of a big feat of strength to do. So that was one thing. And then he had, I think, uh, public humiliation was one. He put a dot on the whiteboard at the front of the class. The kid had to stick his nose on the dot the entire class period. So he would call on him, he'd be like talking to the whiteboard and anything. So it was hilarious to watch him try and do that just because he was late. So what were the dice of discipline for? What was he using those? He was trying to convey a concept, show us, teach us a lesson, right? So it was kind of weird ways to do that, but that's what he used those for. It's similar with a parable. Christ used parables to teach us concepts that were different for us. They were a little different than how we lived. And so the basic definition of a parable that we're going to use, we can throw that up on the screen, but it's a parable, it's a story, uh, it's derived from real life experiences to convey a lesson. So we see the story and then we can compare it with our own lives, right? You can see the things that we understand through the story and they can see it through comparison and contrasting, right? The only thing that's like kind of similar but not quite is a fable. Maybe that's what came to mind when you heard of parable, fable, parable. <laughs> It's similar spelling at least, but it's not quite there because it, it just teaches a basic moral truth but doesn't have like this uh, a spiritual new life thing that Jesus is talking about. So a parable is a little more basic than a parable is. But so since it has its own category and it's a little bit different 
than what we use today, it makes it a little more challenging to interpret and to study. So some people have done and looked at it in different ways. One way is they see it as an allegory. And they that what that means is each little detail it means something else exactly, like it lines up exactly with something else. The problem with that is nobody can really agree on the exact details and what they agree with. They're like, oh, well, the fattened calf could be this, this, and this, and this. So no one really agrees. Another way that people look at it is that there's just one basic truth that Jesus was trying to get at with the parable. And it's just, that's all he was going for was that one piece of truth. So our position, what we're going to look at today is, yeah, there's something God and Jesus was trying to get at with the parable, but there's usually several lessons that he was teaching. And those lessons usually correspond with the characters in the story. So that's how we're going to break apart our story today. So to start off our section on the parables of Jesus, we're going to look at probably one of the most popular parables, the parable of the prodigal son. So you can go ahead and turn there in Luke 15 in your Bibles. If you ever want to dig more into this, or if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll get one handed out to you. Um, it's on page 849 in those Bibles if you use one of those. But uh, if you want to dig more into this after today, Tim Keller has a, a book called The Prodigal God. It's really straightforward. He puts things really simple, and it was really helpful for me when I was studying this. Um, so he does a good job with that. It's not a really big book and pretty helpful. So if you want to dig more into that, go ahead and check that out. But in Luke 15, uh, we're kind of jumping in into the middle of the passage. So we got some context we got to go through so we can understand what he's talking about and why he's really talking and saying this parable. Okay? So the passage starts out, and there's these tax collectors and sinners gathering around Jesus. And there's this other group, the Pharisees and, tax or Pharisees and teachers of the law, that are kind of like mocking them gathering around Jesus, right? They kind of make a comment. And Jesus responds to that comment by telling three parables in succession, okay? So we need to keep these two people in mind as we look at our story. The first group is the tax collectors and the sinners. Those kind of people regularly gathered around Jesus, and they didn't really follow the Bible, you know, the Old Testament. They didn't really follow the Jewish stuff and ceremonial laws like the Pharisees did. So he attracted those kind of people all the time, and he still does today, right? Which is kind of why people like me have a chance. So there's that group of people. And then there's also the Pharisees as well. They're scoffing at these kind of group of people following Jesus because they're like, well, we hold the law, and these people don't have anything to do with that. And why are they following around him? The comment they actually make is, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Right? So eating with them was a specific cultural reference because to sit down and eat with someone in that culture was a sign of acceptance. So Jesus was accepting the tax collectors and sinners, but he wasn't accepting the Pharisees who had done everything right, right? They were following all the laws. So that's the reason they were a little bit annoyed with what was going on. So it's this exact response that Jesus tells three parables to. So the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. So there's a shepherd, he loses one of his sheep, and he goes to find him and finds him and then rejoices. The second one is the parable of the lost coin. And there's a lady who loses one of her coins. She sweeps her house to find it, finds it, and then rejoices. And then this last parable he tells, the parable of the prodigal son, is the one we're going to look at today. So in Luke 15, starting in verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to feed to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, after all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When the son of yours who has squandered all your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So that's a big chunk, but that's the whole third parable that we're going to look at. And if you go back to that section and look in your Bible, there's usually like a title right before that section. and kind of gives you an idea of what's going on. What's your title say? Just, Just shout it out. Does anyone have, what's your title? What does it say? It's usually the parable of prodigal son and the lost son. If it's something much different than that, you're probably reading the wrong passage. Okay, just so you know. But it has both of those. Are they, why are they different? Is there a reason they're different? Prodigal and lost, do they mean the same thing? Who, which son is it talking about, right? We have two sons in the story. One becomes found. The other one's still lost by the end of the story, right? So which son is it talking about? Prodigal or lost? I say all that to bring this point to mind. Too often we see this first part of the story, right? we see the wayward son uh, leaving and we kind of attach onto that story and see that as a clear message. But then we forget about the other characters in the story and don't see what Jesus has to tell through us, tell through those characters to us today. So let me ask you, who are the three main characters? Shout it out. It's in the front of your passage if you want to look. Right when he starts, he says, there you go. A man had two sons. There's all three characters right there. He doesn't start the prodigal son. Right? He says, a man has two sons. There's our three characters. It's a pretty straightforward story. Right? It has part one is the younger son, which correlates to the tax collectors and sinners of the day. Right? He tells that part one. And then part two is the older son. And that corresponds to the Pharisees that were kind of gathered around him. And then we see the father throughout both responses there. Right? So the parable is as much about the older son as it is the younger son, and as much about the father as it is the sons. So let's look at it. We're going to dig into it today. So part one, the younger brother. So we see the younger brother come to the father, and he's like, hey, can I have my share of estate? Which, even to us today, is kind of a surprising request, right? And we're wondering why he would kind of do such a thing. And the surprise isn't really in the request. 
but it's in the timing of the request. Because in that culture, when the father would die, he would split up his land and his estate between all of his, his kids. So in this case, there's the older brother, so he would get two-thirds of the estate, and then the younger brother get one-third. So that usually happened when he died, though. So for him to come before the death of the father is really disrespectful. It's like I'm saying he wishes he was dead. He's saying, I just want your stuff, not you. How do you think the father's feeling on that one, right? Imagine like your own son coming to you and being like, hey, I just want your stuff, not you, right? Well, what about the older son, right? We don't really see him in this part of the story, but imagine him seeing his, his younger brother leave. He's probably grown up with him on, on their property and on their estate, and then maybe he's a little frustrated. Why is he taking our money now? Like, we just worked all really hard for this. And, and maybe it was, you know, maybe a little under, confused as to why he was doing such a thing, right? So we have these feelings going on. We're like, oh, why is he making such a request? And then the more surprising response is the father. He actually grants the request. This probably floors the Pharisees because they're like, he would never do such a thing. That's ridiculous. What? He gave him the request? Which was, which was kind of crazy, right? So even to, to have to get one-third of his property, he was most likely in real estate. So he would have to sell a lot of his land to get the one-third to give to his son. And so the Greek word you hear used for property is, uh, is bios, which means life. So a lot of the wealth of the father was in that property that he would have to sell. And property in that culture was kind of like your, your honor and your standing in the community. It's like he was selling a little bit of his life, right? So it's kind of like this. Imagine a person that starts their own business and works really hard and they eventually are booming and great success, doing a really good job. And all of a sudden, one of their sons is struggling at home. And so the, the owner of the company kind of throws his career to the side just to go help his son who's in need. It's not the exact parallel, but it's kind of what he's doing, right? It's a lot, the father had a lot of his ownership in that, and he's throwing it aside for his son, right? He tears his life apart for the love of his son only for tremendous loss of honor and rejected love. So from there, we see the younger son's plan um, to go out and to squander all of it. He he literally gets as low as he can go in the mud with pigs. So for us today, that's even pretty gross, right? To be in mud with pigs. Sometimes pigs can be really cute, but most of the time they're pretty gross, especially when they're in mud. But the significance of his low estate that he got in goes even further. So for, he grew up as a, as in the Jewish culture, and for them, they saw pigs as unclean. They didn't even want to touch them. So for him to be not only being with them and touching them, but eating their food, he was completely unclean, and it was completely at the lowest point he could ever be. And he realizes this. He saw how sinful he was, how unclean he was, and how he was in the wrong. So he then makes his plan to come back and be like, all right, I'm going to say sorry, and I'm going to work my way back in, right? Because you know he forfeited his loss, as a son, right? He's like, I already, you know what, I'm done. I kind of messed that up. So I can't be a son anymore, so I'm going to ask him to be his servant, which is specific. Try and think like a, a worker here, not like a slave. They actually could earn their way a little bit back in, try and make restitution uh, in some way. So he's coming back to the house. He's, he's going through his script in his mind. He's like, all right, so I'm going to get on my knees. No, no, I should just like bow down all the way and just totally, you know, tell him I'm sorry and go through all that, right? And the father sees him and runs, 
right? He runs to his son, which, you know, maybe some children might run, some women might run, even some young men would run in that culture, but distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs didn't run, right? So even in his greeting of his son, he's already showing his love and his acceptance of his younger son. He just kind of totally disregards his speech, right? He doesn't even listen to what he has to say. He just says, welcome home. Let's throw a feast. Let's throw a party. He gives him a, a robe and a ring and, a, and, a, and, and sandals. All that's kind of showing that he's accepting him back into the family, right? So now imagine how the father must feel, right? His son has returned. He finally realizes what he did wrong, and he's come back. And you can, the father can probably see the lights turning on in the son's head, right? So now imagine what the younger son is doing, right? how he's feeling. He's, he had this whole thing in mind, and man, he was in for a surprise, right? His, his father is happy to see him. He didn't quite understand, like, wait, I just did all these things, and you still love me? Try and put yourself in his shoes. Have you ever been floored by someone's love and devotion or someone's forgiveness and acceptance? Or maybe you've had the lights turn on your head when you've seen that and been like, oh, wow, when someone, that's love right there. As I mentioned, I had the wonderful privilege of being married three weeks ago. And one of the first things that we wanted to do as a married couple was wash each other's feet. So after we exchanged rings and said our vows, we washed each other's feet. And I've done foot washing before, and it's a great humbling experience to have someone wash your feet as well. But what floored me even more uh, was seeing my new bride get on her knees in her wedding dress and wash my feet. There's nothing that I did to deserve any kind of love and unconditional servitude of just committing her life to serve me to wash my feet. In our dating and and our engagement, there was plenty of times that I just did knuckle brain things to totally earn myself the opposite, mud slung on my face, but she chose to wash my feet instead. And that's when the lights clicked on for me and like, wow, that's unconditional love. That's commitment right there. So although this is a great story of the younger son, right, where he comes back and the father accepts him and we see the freeness of God's grace in this story. It doesn't end there. The second part shows us the cost. And it also is the true climax of the story. So that's part one. And so here we're going to dig into part two, the older brother. So when the older son hears of the return of his brother, he's furious. Right? It's not like he's having, oh, hey, brother, welcome back. No, he's furious, right? And it's kind of confusing why, because it's, hey, his brother's back. Why isn't he happy? He's mad at a couple of things. First, it's the cost, right? So the fattened calf and the goat, he's not really that picky on his meat choice. You know, that's just kind of a, a symbol to show that his, the son is now back into the family. So regardless of when the uh, father would give the older son his stuff, the son came to ask for his one-third. That means the rest of the stuff is the older son's. The rest of the father's property is now the older son's. So when he's accepting the younger son back into the family, he's getting another one-third. So everything that the father uses is the son, the older son's. So it's at the older son's expense that the younger son comes back into the family. And the older son realizes that and is upset about that cost, right? Someone had to make the cost to pay the price, right? That's what I mean by this shows the cost of him coming back. The first part shows the freeness of God's grace. 
But the second part shows the cost, right? There was a cost that we can receive God's grace, and that's through Jesus. We'll dig into that a little bit more later. But he's not only upset at the cost, he's also upset at the comparison. He looks at his own life and he said, hey, look, I had a perfect record. And your son of yours, right, he squandered it with prostitutes and did all this stuff. Why are you giving this to him? Like, I at least deserve something and you haven't given me anything, right? He was right. The, the older son was right. He was doing the right stuff. The younger son clearly wasn't. It didn't make sense, right? It was a concept he didn't understand. So and that's why he's frustrated. He's thinking it's not fair and it, and it isn't. It really wasn't fair. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Maybe it's a little easier to relate to the older brother now. That's not fair. Maybe it's at work when you've been working really hard and the other guy gets the raise. Or maybe in school you've been in class working really hard doing your homework and the other person gets the teacher award, the other person gets the better grade for some reason, even though you did a better job. It's unfair. Trust me, I was the king of unfair. That's unfair. That was like my phrase. Like my family would easily and quickly agree with me that whenever we had like chores to do or who got what, I was like, that's not fair. Anything, even if it was fair, like completely, I still would just have to say that's not fair because that was my line. So with yet another disgraceful response from the son, from another son of his, the father still responds in love. He pleads with him to come in and enjoy the party. And right as all this is going through our minds, we're like, okay, how's the older son going to do? What is he going to do? The story ends. Why does he end there? It's a terrible way to end a story, right? It didn't finish it. He ended there because he's still waiting for them to respond. The Pharisees are the people he was talking to. And they're the older sons. They're the ones that are rejecting the younger brother. So he's, Jesus is condemning not only a life of sin, but also a life of just doing good works and just doing the right thing because it makes you look good, right? Jesus was condemning both lifestyles. He wasn't on either side. He wasn't on either brother's side. So it makes us ask, well, whose side is he on, right? Do we have any Lord of the Rings nerds out there? Anyone has maybe heard of that a little bit? We got a couple, okay. That's a, a book series in, in later movies that have all these different characters, like elves, orcs, men, all these different people uh, just kind of fighting for Middle Earth, right? And they're trying to uh, gain power, is what they're trying to do. Some team up with others, others team up with the other people. And uh, they're trying to, to beat the other side. And some of them don't pick a side. They just kind of don't fight in, in the war at all. A character that's like this, like this wise, sage-like group of people. And the main character asks one of these people, well, whose side are you on? We need your help. You're helping me, aren't you? Like, well, whose side are you on? And Treebeard, the guy that he's talking to, answers like this. I'm not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I'm not altogether on. So Jesus' own answer to this question through the parable is similar. He's not on the side of the moral or immoral, the religious or the irreligious, right? He has his own category. He is shattering ours, our way that we think we can get to God and be happy, right? He's giving us a totally different way of life that's hard for us to understand because it's different. So what? We've been asking that question through our series, so what? 
what does this mean for us in this parable? Right? What is Jesus trying to teach us through these three characters? Right? What were the dice of discipline for? Right? They were teaching us a lesson. What was this parable for? It's teaching us something that's a little bit harder for us to grasp because it's so different. So first in the younger brother, we see the rule breaker. So we see someone that it's kind of representing the way of life that just looks for happiness through doing their own thing, kind of being free and just seeking a life of happiness in their own way. They're the rule breaker. Does anyone know someone like that? A rule breaker at heart, maybe always a little bit rebellious, things like that. Jeff definitely raised his hand back there. But I actually used to work at a water park or pool before I worked here at Grace as a lifeguard. I was a lifeguard there. And um, when the worst thing to ever have is when you have a kid that breaks every single rule, like all the whole day, because then you're constantly yelling at that kid. So one second you're like, hey, don't walk, you know, I want to be safe, whatever. But the next million seconds, you're whistling them to not do a backflip, not cartwheel, not jump off their friend's back, not do all these different things. The funny thing is it's usually the kid that's been there since they were born. They know all the rules, they just think it's funny to break all of them, and it's way more fun, apparently. So that's like a rule breaker, right? And that's what it is kind of like for this, this younger son. But we have to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to be lost as a younger son today? It's a little clearer than in some other parts in this story, but we can tell when we hit rock bottom sometimes. Maybe we've tried to fill our lives with anything else to make us happy, to satisfy ourselves, to do anything to make ourselves better, right? And that's what the younger brother did. Maybe that's a little bit of your story of where you were. Maybe you used to have something that you sought after and tried to replace God with, but then you found Jesus and now you found true happiness. Or maybe you're still looking for that happiness, right? And that's okay, that you can be there, right? It's all on your own timing and your own choice because if we look in this story, the father doesn't go out and drag the younger son in, right? He waits for him to come back and then he accepts him, right? So it's our choice and trust me when I say it's the best choice you're ever going to make. The Heavenly Father, just as the Father in this story, shows us love and grace that's absolutely free. And it covers all of our sin. That's the point that Jesus was getting through with this story. So if that's your story, maybe you're a little bit in the mess right now. God's love and grace covers all of our sin and forgives and can pardon anything that we've done. That's the message to the younger son here. We just have to wake up and realize our need for the Father, right? We have to see that we're in the mud with the pigs. But the thankful thing that we have is that's not where it ends, right? He can cover our sin for that. So I urge you to say yes to Jesus if you haven't before. Uh, it's the greatest thing you'll ever happen. It's the happiness you'll find in him, right? Nothing else can satisfy. So that's the story of the younger brother, right? That's the so what about him? So what about the older brother? What do we learn from him? So as we mentioned earlier, this title says the parable of the lost son. But which son is it talking about? Which one is still lost by the end of the story? There's another kind of lostness that's more dangerous than the younger son. I was talking to my dad this week um, about an, a bizarre article that he read. And I thought it was very interesting and I had to put it in. It works really well. But there was this elderly lady that had, was going in for a routine cataract surgery. And... <laughs> Uh, her eyes have been aching for a little bit, but uh, she hadn't been to the eye doctor for 35 years. And it's like, all right, it's probably about time. I'm probably just getting a little old, need some surgery. 
and uh, she goes into the surgeon's office. They're ready to go do surgery, and they look in her eyes and find 27 contact lenses in one of her eyes. Yeah. So for 35 years, she didn't go to the doctor. And she, it's those monthly ones you're supposed to take out, I guess, and she just kept putting them in and didn't realize her need for the doctor, right? It's the same thing with the older son, right? If you're sick and you know you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you're not sick or you don't realize you're sick, really, you're still sick but you don't realize it, that's when you get in trouble, right? It's the same thing. Maybe you, you, get, you have your eyesight, you're like, oh, I don't need my eyesight checked, but then you end up, you know, becoming blind to the things you need to see in your life, right? Kind of like this lady. But that's why the elder brother and the older brother hearing about this is so important because they don't realize their need for God. They don't go to him and beg for forgiveness because they don't think they need it, right? It's also important for the younger brother to hear about this as well because so often it's the younger brother that comes to church or to see as a Christian today and they run into that older brother mentality, right? They, they, have, a, they have that us-them mentality and they feel hated and whatever it is. But it's important for the younger brother to see that that's not what Christ calls us to and, and to follow him, right? When we say yes to Jesus, that's not what he's calling us to, right? In comparison to both of these lostness of the brothers, uh, Tim Keller, the guy I mentioned earlier, says it like this. You can run away from God by breaking all the rules or by keeping them. It's kind of a scary message there. But does anyone know someone that's like that? We have a rule breaker, but then we have a rule follower. Someone that always follows the rules, and this can look like anything, right? It could be another religion. It could be just someone that follows a different kind of moral values or their own values that they have, right? But what is Jesus telling us through this older son, right? What's his message here? It's pretty straightforward. It isn't our good works that get us into the party, right? It's only through God's grace. It's only through his son, Jesus, right? We can't earn our way in there, right? The father didn't let the son earn his way in. He couldn't. When we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to that relationship, not to those rules, right? It's out of our love that we want to follow him and out of his love for us, knowing what's best for us. So to reflect, you ask yourselves, what's my motivation? Who am I following Christ for, right? Are you just following the rules because that's what you're supposed to do? Or are you following the rules because you love Jesus and, and he knows what's best for you? So rather than focusing on what we're supposed to do, that was totally me. I always focused on, oh, well, that's what I'm supposed to do, so I'm going to do it. Rather than focusing on that, we need to focus on God's initiating love, and we need to join in that, right? In the parable, the father goes out and invites the older son to join in. And we're supposed to join in and, and join in that party, right? It's not about following the rules. It's about loving the father. And that's what we have as our last character in this story. That's what we're going to end with today. So as we mentioned earlier, it's as much about the sons as it is the father. And prodigal, we can throw it up on screen, prodigal means a couple of things. It means recklessly spendthrift and having spent everything. So a good synonym for it is reckless. So who was reckless in this story? Let's go ahead and shout it out. The younger brother, for sure, right? He went out, spent everything, recklessly spent all of his inheritance, right? Well, who else was reckless? Was the older brother? Yeah, maybe 
maybe a little bit in his anger and frustration towards his brother and his, his uh, dishonor of his father, maybe a little bit. What about the father? Was he reckless? How was he reckless? Have you ever thought about that before? What was his response to the younger son when he came back? What was his response? He ran out, right? He was reckless. He threw away his honor and, and just ran to him, right? And just throws his arms around him and accepts him. He didn't reckon or account the sin against the son at all. That was reckless right there. Well, what was his response to the older son? The same thing, right? He recklessly loved him and went out, even though he was dishonored to leave the party, right? He was the host of the party and left. He still loved both sons. He chased after both of them and showed him his love, right? So just as the father in this story recklessly loves both of his sons, God, our heavenly father, loves us, right? And gives us the greatest hope we can ever have, God's reckless grace and reckless love. So regardless of which son you relate to, whether you're more of a rule keeper or a rule breaker, uh, the father in this story shows us that God's reckless love is for us, giving us the greatest hope that we can ever have, right? There's nothing quite like it. That's why Jesus uses a parable to tell it to us. It's something that doesn't make sense. It doesn't really line up. It doesn't follow our rules. It's a different concept entirely, right? Well, what was the dice of discipline for? Just to teach us this lesson that we needed to learn. This parable that Jesus uses tells us of God's reckless love. It doesn't always make sense, but it's what God wants to show us and what he wants us to learn. Let's pray.